Welcome back to Crawl Space. Tonight, we have a really interesting interview. What do you think, Lance? Yeah, it's very interesting. It's uh, Deborah Halber. She wrote the book The Skeleton Crew, which is essentially about the the, the, the birth of the uh, amateur sleuth. And this is also the first episode of what we are going to call the Seller Series. Now, these interviews have nothing to do with the current case that we're working on. For example, we are working on the Brianna Maitland case. In the future, we'll be working on other cases. These are going to be shorter interviews that we conduct with people who are in the industry of unsolved crimes, uh, online sleuthing, amateur sleuthing, podcasters, podcasters. authors. So they're going to be shorter interviews where where um where they can create a thread that 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 ties together this entire community of of amateur sleuthing yeah and it's it's topics and people that we find interesting so we would like to think that you will find them interesting as well it gives us a little bit of uh of freedom to to show our personality when it comes to interviewing people and And a little bit of a breather too from the darker stuff exactly Okay, so let's roll the interview with Deborah Halber, and we highly recommend that you check out her book, The Skeleton Crew. You can buy it on Amazon or wherever books are sold, and we will link to it in the show notes. So check out the book. It is really great. It's really great, and it's something if you are a a millennial amateur sleuth who does the research online – I mean, this isn't even like ancient history. This is, you know, the turn of the 2000s. This is 1990s to 2000s. And it's going to be pretty remarkable and pretty fascinating for you to look at and and see how hard it was. Not even that long ago. You have, a, <laughs> you have it very easy. Let's roll the interview. And thank you very much for listening to Crawl Space. Check out blueapron.com slash crawlspace for your first three meals free with free shipping. Deborah Halbert to the podcast. Deborah is the author of a nonfiction book called The Skeleton Crew about online sleuths trying to solve cold cases and help match missing persons to unidentified human remains. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Uh, you and I had originally emailed a little while ago when Tim and I first started doing uh, our project with uh, Maura Murray's disappearance. Um, before we get into your book and the culture of amateur sleuthing, let the, uh, let the listeners know a little bit about what you do because it says here that you're a science writer. And I was trying to figure out – I didn't want to Google it and cheat. I wanted you to let me know what a science writer does. Uh, well, basically, I just write mostly about science. I consider that my specialty. Uh, but this uh, particular foray into this investigation that led to um, the skeleton crew – is a bit of an anomaly for me. Um, When I came across uh, a Massachusetts case that I was particularly fascinated about, a case called The Lady of the Dunes, um, about a woman who had been, um, this woman had been brutally murdered in Provincetown in the 70s, and she had never been identified. So, so yes, I do mostly consider myself a science writer, and there is some science of forensics in my book, but um, this particular uh, investigation is really about cold cases and unidentified human remains. 
And it's also really interesting to look at the um, – because Tim and I are right in the thick of that culture of amateur sleuths and uh, online sleuthing. And it was really interesting to read this and discover that there is almost a founder of this this culture, of this community, uh, Todd Matthews. Yes. Um, this was a time uh... – let me back up a little bit. Uh, Todd Matthews is, um, he lives in, in Livingston, Tennessee. And uh, he, at the time that he was in high school, he came across a case, um, much like I had stumbled on the Lady of the Dunes case. He had stumbled across a case known as Ted Girl. And this was um, a young woman, some said maybe a teenager, who had been found um, dead by the side of a road um, in Kentucky in the 60s. And this was, Todd was um, not even alive when she was found, but uh, when he stumbled upon this case, he became pretty obsessed with it himself. So he spent 10 years trying to figure out the identity of Tent Girl. And uh, the thing that um, really brought this community into being was the advent of the internet. At the advent of the internet, it started to become possible to create rudimentary bulletin boards, um, just ways to post information that a lot of people could see at the same time. So when people started realizing they could do this with missing persons cases and unidentified remains, this was um, a real game changer for this uh, endeavor for web sleuths, if you will. Um, and Todd was one of the first to post information online, to search through online information. And that's how he eventually did manage to actually solve the case of Tent Girl. It's pretty fascinating that he went through the majority of his searching for the identity of Tent Girl during a time when the internet didn't exist and right at the point of its infancy. So between 1968, when Tent Girl was discovered, and 1998, you have a period of no internet, right? I mean, for the most part. So my question is, how do you see the evolution of amateur sleuthing improving or not improving? Maybe it's actually hurting investigations between when Tent Girl was first discovered in 1968 to 98, as opposed to 98 to now. Hopefully that question isn't too confusing because they did they they were looking into the identity of Tent Girl by making phone calls and and going to the library and putting boots on the ground and, and interviewing people. Now it's it's a Google search and a lot of people draw their own conclusions based on internet chatter. So yes, so the early days uh, was just a completely different ballgame. As you say, it was a matter of um looking through newspaper archives, um, old police files, if those were available, uh, anything they could find um, that was related to a case. And the point was, um, the goal was to get it out there. Because, you know, from state to state, uh, some dusty archives, uh, that's not something people are just going to stumble across. So uh, initially, Todd's uh, real... Um, efforts that were, as you say, just with very um, almost antiquated sources of microfiche and files and old newspaper articles. 
Um, and then, but getting that information up on the internet was really key. So since then, yes, what I think what has happened is that now it has become essentially a purely an online venture and people are searching for information, which is still available um, online. I mean, entire archives of newspapers are now online. So you certainly can still search for the equivalent of information in a, you know, a dusty filing cabinet still exists and it still can be found um, and it now can be found online. So, so yes, the, the search has been altered by the, um, the advances uh, of the internet. But what hasn't changed is that this is still essentially a needle in a haystack kind of search. Um, especially when you're talking about uh, unidentified remains and missing people, there, there may be a lot of records, there may be way more records than there used to be, but essentially you're still trying to make an almost impossible match to make because on one hand, for unidentified remains, you might have a few details such as estimated height or weight or age. Um, and then for missing people, you would have uh, a true height and weight and age, hopefully, if the information is accurate. But trying to put those together um, is, is just a, a nightmarish hunt for, um, for a, like a needle in a haystack. Uh, but so what people are really contributing these days is the crowdsourcing and just having a lot of eyes on the same material in the hope that they will propose a match that actually turns out to be an accurate one. What do you think people get out of this kind of thing, doing this? What do you think they, uh, psych psychologically speaking or uh, emotionally speaking, what, what, why do people do this? Well, that is pretty much what I was wondering when I set out to um, write this book and research this book. So I could not imagine what it would take to look through some of the information that is available online, but is so disturbing and creepy. Um, there are these databases. Um, some of them are um, created by law enforcement or certain jurisdictions or let's say a federal agency, some sort of government agency. Some of them are created by other web sleuths and they are just, you know, they have uh, little warning signs, but, um, but they can be extraordinarily disturbing. Some of them have actual morgue photos. Some of them have uh, digital reconstructions of what the person would have looked like when they had been alive. Uh, some of them have very amateurish pencil sketches, but in essentially what it is you're looking at is an online morgue, and it's um, it can get very wearing very fast um, because it's just so sad to think of all these people out there who have no whose families have no closure, uh, whose families don't know where they are or if they're alive or dead. Uh, whatever became of them. And when you think of yourself or your loved ones being in that situation, it's just just doubly sad. So people who are looking uh, to provide this kind of closure to families are looking through these images um, for hours and hours and hours, sometimes on a daily basis. And it really, um, 
is to me strikes me as as just very soul crushing. So I did set out to try to figure out what people were doing when they were doing this. And it turns out people have a variety of motives and um, uh, reasons for, for doing this kind of work. And it is work. It's hard work. Um, and it's primarily thankless, unpaid work. Um, but they, but some people do it for that very reason, uh, that they do want to, that they feel for the families and they do want to provide closure to a family who's missing a loved one. Um, other people do it because they are good at this kind of thing. They're, they're good at puzzles and challenges and maybe they're somewhat underemployed in their day jobs. Um, so they might be. Um, super smart and um, very able to pick up on clues and put these kinds of clues together, but they don't necessarily have the option of doing that on a day-to-day basis for their for their regular work. So this becomes a hobby uh, that's a, that's a challenge and um, and can provide satisfaction again if they do actually manage to make uh, those elusive matches. So those are just some of the motivations. Um, for people who are out there working in these fields. There's a quote in your book by Todd Matthews where he says, making an identification, that's power. You just changed something. You changed an unknown person into a homicide investigation. And he's a really interesting character. He's probably, would you say he's the central character in the book? Yes, he's definitely um, definitely one of them. Uh, Todd's story is so crazy in so many ways he's um he started out just living in a in a a really simple um tiny town he still lives in the same town he grew up in but when he first lived there he was first married he and his wife were um teenage uh bride and groom and they lived in um, a trailer home, basically, um, adjacent to his parents' uh, very modest house. And they struggled financially. They both worked full-time. They, you know, they did everything they could to make ends meet. Yet um, Todd was working on this uh, second job, so to speak. I mean, he, he worked uh, midnight, you know, night shifts in a factory. And um, in the rest of his time, he was working this case. He was... Uh, an, you know, unofficial, unpaid, um, volunteer recognized by no one, um, you know, basically brushed off by law enforcement. And yet he persevered uh, with this case. And it did take the advent of the Internet to help him solve it. But but in the end, um, he did. It's a great moment when when you describe him figuring out the identity of Tent Girl. The other interesting character is uh, Marcella Fierro. She struck me as somebody who I think Tim and I would probably get along with. She is, um, <laughs> Dr. Fierro is a, is a force of nature. She is uh, one of the, she um, was uh, the, um, the inspiration for uh, the uh, main character in Patricia Cornwell's um, Fiction, fictional books um, about um, a forensic anthropologist. And uh, in real life, um, Marcel Fierro is, is just, a, as I say, she is a, a powerhouse. And she 
dedicated herself to trying to help others, others like her, find all the clues they possibly could when they came across an unidentified body. It struck her that uh, when she had one of these bodies on her autopsy table, it was it was difficult to figure out anything that could possibly lead to an ID. And many anthropologists, many um, forensic uh, specialists may not have taken the time to do it because it didn't seem like anyone was really looking for these people. Uh, they had no identity, and, and uh, the, the only clues to their identity was on, you know, just their bodies themselves. Did they have tattoos? Had they ever had a broken bone? Um, had they had surgery? Uh, in one case, um, I don't think this was uh, Dr. Fierro's case, but in one case, a woman, an unidentified victim, was identified by the serial numbers in her breast implants. So these people were doing anything they could to try to pull together clues that could eventually lead to an ID. And she was one of the first pioneers in that field to try to make it pave the way for others to be able to get those clues. Did you notice any common elements, like personality-wise or profession-wise, between some of these online sleuths that you researched or met? There, uh, the online sleuths, to me, uh, and this when I was researching this book, this was a few years ago, but I traveled around the country to talk to as many of the ones as I could who had had uh, amazing success stories. So the ones... The uh, web sleuths that I sought out were ones who had um, had a track record, had a proven track record of actually um, making matches, providing IDs that eventually panned out. And this was huge because a lot of there are many online sleuths, many web sleuths, uh, many of them have uh, provided potential IDs, but uh, only a small fraction of them actually turn out to be accurate. So, but I was struck by how the online, the web sleuths that I spoke to had seemed to just come from all walks of life. Um, some of them were professional people. They, you know, had high powered day jobs and came home and did this at night. Others were stay at home mothers who um, snuck in a few hours on the computer whenever they could. Others were retirees who were doing this um, as a sort of second profession, second or third career. Um, there were um, retired law enforcement uh, in one state. There was a, re uh, a retired uh, sheriff who was doing this. So it was actually a pretty uh, wide range of types of people who were involved but they all seem to get involved in a similar manner they usually had heard about a case uh maybe a missing persons case and when they went on the internet to try to see what they could find out they came across some of these websites uh the doe network uh as in jane and john doe was one of the earliest um web sites of its kind 
and it's still up there. And um, they would come across a website like that and be struck by all the unidentified bodies out there. And they would get sucked into this world and start to, one thing would lead them to another and they would start to try to investigate the cases on their own. We do a podcast on uh, a pretty popular missing person uh, named Maura Murray. Is it safe to say that there are enough people out there doing this kind of thing that Maura Murray has been searched over and over through these databases? I believe so, especially a case like hers that has gotten a fair bit of media coverage over the years. Um, I would think that that would lead to uh, an enormous um, outpouring of interest among the public and people who would go on to the web to try to, A, read more about her particular case, and then B, uh, like some of the web sleuths happen upon uh, missing persons uh, websites and then get get involved through that route. But but yes, there there's usually a huge outpouring of interest in a case like that. Um, the sad thing is that there are um, among especially among the unidentified, there are so many of these. Um, there are supposedly forty thousand uh, at least unidentified bodies across the U.S. And so many of these people have never had even a few words of, of media coverage. They are just completely, literally nameless, faceless, and, um, and you know, long lost uh, to the back burner of uh, law enforcement. So it's, it's some of the less known cases where web can make uh, an enormous difference. And it wasn't until... 2001, correct? That there, that there, there wasn't even a uh, a budget for identifying these unknown victims, correct? Yes, um, it was actually 9/11 um, that spawned um, a bit of public money that got freed up in in this realm because when 9/11 happened, it there was an enormous effort. Uh, underway immediately to identify the victims, uh, yet uh, DNA uh, was not. Uh, it was, DNA identification was certainly available and um, and possible, but there was no um, very organized way to go about it. So, so nine eleven allowed some public money to go toward having DNA become more readily available, more quickly uh, accomplished in in labs and in crime labs in particular. So that did uh, create a whole other uh, set of data points um, for people who were trying to match the missing and the unidentified to take advantage of. Right. And that was it was uh, Sherry Nolan, right, that kind of slipped that in. Uh, she saw the opportunity to do so. And that was a... Uh... When I read that part in the book, I, I was, I was, uh, I was impressed with that. I was reminded of, of the how the uh, the women's suffrage vote was uh, slipped in, kind of like a Trojan horse, and uh, it was very it was very clever clever of her to do that. Um, and you met her, right? Yes, yes. Sherry is a wonderful person, and um, it's just interesting that she was at the time she was working um, for the federal government, but 
in her previous uh, part of her career, she had worked with um, John Walsh, who, um, you know, was and is a pioneer of using TV to um, to bring public attention to cold cases. Um, so she had worked closely with him. She remembered during the times of um, when he was uh, heading up America's Most Wanted and she worked behind the scenes, she would get letters um, and calls from family members who desperately wanted their loved ones' cases to become part of the show. But it wasn't the kind of criminal case. Uh, it might have been just a missing person. Not, it's not just a missing person, but it was a missing person case that wasn't quite what was typically featured on America's Most Wanted. So what she remembered was the agony of these families, and it drove her to try to figure out if this is a federal, if this is a national problem, and if so, could the federal government make a contribution? Why do you think people who haven't been successful in doing this kind of thing can get so easily obsessed? I think part of it, part of the attraction or part of the impetus for getting involved is that it's a mystery. I think we're all drawn to a mystery in some sense. And these cases are mysteries. Each one is its own amazing, uh, difficult to comprehend that it even exists kind of puzzle or a challenge or um, just a, a, a question of how could this have happened? How could somebody become so removed from their identity or the proof of their identity that they are just a skeleton in the woods or, or a body in a river or decomposing remains uh, by the side of a road? And it just seems inconceivable to us in this time uh, where our identities seem to be in much more danger of being too public rather than too private, that people could get so divorced from their identities that they end up in this, in this terribly sad, horrible predicament. So I think that's part of the mystery that surrounds all these bodies. And as I said, they're all individual mysteries unto themselves. So I think when people come across them and they realize this, uh, I think they're kind of drawn into wondering, in, in, they're drawn into the challenge and they're wondering if there's a way that they might be able to um, solve at least part of the mystery, which is to reunite the person with their name. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Right. And, and I feel like the majority of the characters, and there are a lot of characters in this book uh, that, you, that, that you touch upon, but I feel like the majority of them were looking for something else when a particular case found them. 
uh, you know, Todd Matthews and uh, Betty Dalton Brown looking for a missing brother or um, – because Todd Matthews married the father of married uh, Wilbur Riddle, right? So he kind of happened to find the 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 tent girl case, and if he, you know, these these like situations, these circumstances that come around to the right person, because a lot of people would just look at that and say, I, I just don't have time to do that. It's all these circumstances that you talked about before, where they probably didn't have a job that. Um, they had a job that that freed them up to do to do something like this. They had a lifestyle that that for whatever reason was uh, complementary to amateur sleuthing. Well, sometimes sometimes that was true, uh, but a lot of the times it actually wasn't. It it it, it wasn't really that Todd did have the uh, the bandwidth, uh, it, so to speak. He didn't have the finances. He didn't have the free time, really to do this kind of thing. Um, but he became so obsessed. Yes. As you say, he, um, it was through the, um, his high school girlfriend who is, is became his wife and is still his wife. Um, her father, Wilbur Riddle was the one who came across tent girl who actually, he was a well driller. He was working in a rural area along a, um, a quiet country road um, he was actually searching for, um, there were these glass um, pieces that used to be part of a old-fashioned telephone pole that were sometimes discarded, and it was a, a pretty piece of blown glass that you could sometimes find by the side of a road. So he was searching for those to add to his collection when he stumbled upon this girl who had been, who was dead and wrapped in, a, in a, what looked like a carnival tent. So he became uh, synonymous in a way with Tent Girl. He was the one who found her. And as the years wore on and she was unidentified, uh, he was actually written up in Master Detective um, as associated with this case. So this, is, this was Todd's introduction to this world of unidentified bodies. Um, he heard it as a sort of a ghost story, sort of, so to speak, from his um, girlfriend, um, who later became his fiance and his wife, and that was um, that was when he got obsessed with it. He had lost um, two siblings when they were infants, so he kind of felt an allegiance uh, in in a way with um, with the dead. These um, these uh, siblings were talked about in his household as though um, they hadn't been dead for 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 decades. They were their birthdays were were recognized um, and celebrated and they, and they were very much part of Todd's life in a way. So he felt an allegiance with um, this, this girl um, and he felt very compelled to try to bring her back um, her identity. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a, it's an excellent point. I actually want to make, uh, take this opportunity to mention the video that's on Vimeo, um, which I think is like a trailer to your book. The uh, um, have you you're aware of what I'm talking about, right? Well, I, you know, I'm not quite sure of the status of it, but there was a Memphis uh, filmmaker who had been working on a documentary about Todd's life, and uh, I'm not sure if the documentary is is completed and out there yet. But he had um, some of the footage is available on YouTube, and it's um, 
Uh, it's really it's amazing to to see some of the interviews he's done with with Todd over the years. Yeah, I just feel like it's a good opportunity to look at uh, at Todd Matthews after you're reading about him in the, in your book and you describe him so well, and then you watch this video uh, of him. Um, I mean, the accents down. It's 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 remarkable that that someone with the resources that he may or may not have had has done what he's done. Exactly. And, and Todd um, did move on to almost um, really remarkably uh, become uh, quite a high-ranking uh, government official, so to speak, in this field. He um, works for the National uh, Missing and Unidentified Persons System, which is known as NamUs, and it is the first um, uh regulation government database for the missing and the unidentified. It's particularly um, interesting in that it is completely open to the public. It it is available to law enforcement, um, to forensic specialists, um, but it is also open to the public. So if you um, have um, a missing person uh, in your family, you could amend those details within the database yourself. So this is a truly astounding um, tool that is um, uh, very slowly legislation is now in different states is now requiring law enforcement to use it. Previously, it has been um, mostly voluntary, uh, but hopefully it'll get to a point where this is the national database um, used um, routinely by law enforcement, um, coroners, and the public uh, for the entire country. And that alone will lead to so many more, and it is so far leading to so many more IDs. Um, There's been a flood of IDs uh, since NamUs has come about, um, whereas before it was just something, you know, one or two would trickle in. And uh, now they've, uh, it's up to, I think, hundreds. So it, it has made a huge difference and hopefully will continue to make a huge difference. And Todd, was one of the early people involved with um, NamUs, and he's um, he's still uh, very high up in the organization. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool because what uh, Tim and I deal with with the podcasts and the cases that we're looking at, uh, there's a lot of questioning as to whether or not it's a positive has a positive impact on the case or a negative impact on the case, and I've. Uh, had the conversation many times with with listeners and with Tim about it's all in how you approach it. And if you approach it responsibly, then you're going to have positive results. Uh, some people don't do that, but it's inspiring to look at somebody like Todd who made something so big out of out of you know what some, what he even called an obsession. So yes, it was an obsession, but it's all in what you do with it. Exactly. Todd has um, is has spent so much time on this and it's truly made a huge difference. And I think um, he and his family are thankfully gratified to see what he has accomplished because early on he, as you can imagine, uh, it was a really questionable effort and it, it might not have led anywhere at all. It might have actually wrecked his whole family life at some point um it was uh it was a real struggle when he was sticking with this uh and it seemed to be going nowhere at all did you find yourself uh 
connected, emotionally connected, or anything like that to uh, any of these cases you were looking into, or any of the um, uh, unidentified remains that um, that that you uh, researched for this book. The one that uh, did initially catch my attention is is the one that is local to Massachusetts. Uh, the Lady of the Dunes um, was found in Provincetown, which is um, a very uh, artsy, uh, cute summer enclave at the very tip of Cape Cod. Um, it's just a, a just a charming town with a spectacular national seashore. And you would not imagine that this would be the setting for a brutal murder um, where this, this young woman was found with her hands cut off and her skull bashed in and absolutely no indication of who might have done this to her and is still to this day uh, unidentified. So that case uh, was the one that drew me in. I did spend... Um, a lot of time trying to connect with people who had tried to solve it unsuccessfully, um, gone over, I, I spent time with people who had tried to solve it without any success. Um, I myself tried to see what it would be like to be a web sleuth and solve this case. And it turns out that I would be a very bad web sleuth. I just, um, was blown away by how much attention to detail it would require, how much time it, um, it just wasn't something that I felt like I could even do. So I just, it just made me admire even more the people who uh, could spend so much time and effort on any of these cases. Tell us more about what you've learned about the Lady of the Dunes. I had the um, honor of looking over this particular case with a local web sleuth named Bobby Lingos, who was, and I think he actually might have retired recently, but for for decades he was um, a 9-11 dispatcher. So he had the ability to go into um, the official system that logged uh, the missing and the uh, unidentified for police. It wasn't nearly as um, extensive and dedicated to this um, this particular focus as NamUs, but it, it, it was the place where, at the time, um, it was a repository for everything that was missing or lost or stolen and uh, people just ended up being added to this particular database because there's nowhere else to put them. But he had the ability as um, a sort of an adjunct member of law enforcement to log into this database. And he was one of the earliest people to say, hey, what would happen if I searched for a certain criteria? For instance, there was not an identified person with a very distinctive tattoo um, of initials on his shoulder and so Bobby searched for a tattoo of that kind, and sure enough, a missing person popped up um, who was uh, noted as having a similar tattoo. 
So Bobby was able to make these early matches because he was in a very unusual position that the public usually is not of having access to this database. But still, it wasn't just his access, it was the notion that he could search and try to put two and two together that way. So I asked Bobby to, to take me behind the scenes in the uh, Quincy, Massachusetts Police Department and let us look to see what was out there um, on Lady of the Dunes. So we did. We, we went through um, a few searches. Um, we tried um, all sorts of um, tag words that we had known had popped up. For instance, um, her dental work had been recorded, but nobody had ever, no dentist had ever found a match um, for her uh, for her dental work. Uh, but we tried everything we could think of, and um, it uh, came up with dead ends very, very quickly. So, um, so it was impressive to see Bobby do this and ha to have the ability to see how a web sleuth uh, actually works um, day to day. Uh, but in the end, as I said, I would not have the immense amount of patience needed for this, and it didn't, unfortunately, lead anywhere. I'm glad that Bobby was brought up in talking about the Lady of the Dunes because he, he, he stood out to me as a, one of my favorite characters in the book as well. Um, he seemed like a rock star. <laughs> he had an amazing number of solves under his belt. Yeah. Um, he really um, led the way in um, doing this, and it's kind of remarkable that he was really just uh, an ordinary citizen, uh, even though he did you know, work as a dispatcher. In, in essence, he really was not a member of law enforcement. And it's pretty remarkable that it took somebody who was just a regular um, citizen to, to make these breakthroughs that you know, somebody else uh could have tried to do before him but didn't right how many solves did he have um i can't seem to find the uh... like it was maybe a total of six it was really it was it's really unusual um to have even one yet he had quite a few he did end up uh retiring in a way from this kind of work it is it is very uh taxing as i mentioned it's it's disheartening and um kind of surrounding yourself with uh, with pain whenever you're looking into this. Uh, so he did eventually uh, stop doing it. But but in his um, most productive period, he did have an extraordinary number of matches. It's also inspirational, yeah. Speaking of retirement and, and, and this being kind of dark work and things like that, in writing this book, is this was it something that you... Did you um, find yourself to become any different like uh like more serious or, or anything like that because speaking for myself since we've started this podcast i have found myself to be a little bit more serious of a person yeah so have i and and you and i tim have never walked through uh like the coroner's office or the coroner's what is it a coroner's warehouse in in vegas and that i can i can imagine that that would change you well it's funny um people have uh, very different levels of tolerance for the field and for gore in general. Um, I'm actually looking into um, the fact that um, 
Instagram actually has a number of uh, accounts where it's, I think it's meant for medical students to make a diagnosis and they, they post the most gory, horrible stuff you can possibly imagine of uh, severed limbs and bashed in brains and, and organs. And, and yet um, some of these sites have more than a million followers. So clearly they're not all medical students. And there's something about these kinds of images that attracts uh, a certain kind of person. So I don't really know exactly what that's all about. But um, that in researching this book, I did have to come up against those limits for myself and trying to figure out what my tolerance is for um, for things that um, people who work in the field become inured to, but that most people don't see day to day. So yes, I did stumble um, upon uh, unexpected uh, sites within morgues and um, it, uh, it, it uh, made me wonder, you know, what, why is it that some people can do this kind of work? Uh, of course, I, I do understand that some people just generate over time an ability to deal with, uh, to divorce themselves from the idea that this is a human being on an autopsy table, but others um, can do it seemingly without that, uh, that uh, trial period. So I, I don't know the answer to that, but it does seem like it's almost like a, a genetic ability to deal with um, this kind of subject, this kind of visual, and um, and it does make you wonder uh, where along the spectrum you fall. Did you find that doing this kind of thing affected other areas of your life or uh, annoyed some other people, uh, that uh, some relationships that are close to you or things like that? I did become uh, known in um, among my friends and family for um, for this subject, and uh, as I said, most people do consider it uh, not a topic of cocktail party conversation to talk about uh, decomposing bodies. Uh, so, so I'm afraid I did develop a bit of a reputation along these lines, but um, but I like to think it's it's in service of something greater than myself which is to raise awareness of of the plight of of so many people right i've had so many of those moments where people hear about the podcasts and and it's it's at some sort of party or something or you know like a christmas party or something or a work function and they oh well tell me about it and then you're like no you don't really want to know no you don't want to know and then you and then they they insist so you start talking about it and then they realize they don't really want to know <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly it seems like it always happens during a dinner party that somebody wants to know more details and you really have to make a judgment call yeah you're either really boring because you don't go into it you're just like oh yeah no, no you know nothing or you're uh this creep who uh looks into this stuff yeah i feel like we need to like ha have a card or something that we can just slip people and say check this out later just put this in your pocket and check it out later One of the main quotes that, that Todd had in your book that he told you, which resonated to me, was towards the end of your book, but uh, I believe it was in the beginning of your meetings and your exchanges with him. He says, I'm not who I should be. 
I shouldn't be here. And I, I just, with all of the, with all of the intricacies of, of all of the cases and all of the characters that you go into with your book, he is so fascinating to me. And that one line is so fascinating to me. I'm not who I should be. He like he had a preconceived notion just based on his surroundings and his upbringing of who he should have been, um, and you've probably you've probably already kind of answered that previously. But I just wanted to uh, I just wanted to point it out that that was a a, a good uh, a, a good quote by him that he gave to you. Yes, um, Todd is um, Todd is a really wonderful, remarkable, funny, witty, and very insightful person, and he did have that insight about himself early on that he had been led down a truly unusual path for anybody, but he felt especially for himself. He was a factory worker. I'm not sure what his sense was of where he hoped to end up in life, but he did not imagine in a million years that he would be doing what he's doing today. Um, so it, it did open up an entirely new world for him. Um, but he's the perfect person to do it because he's, he, he gets it. He's incredibly compassionate and uh, he just gets, has the ability now to put all of his amazing resources toward this uh, problem of national neglect that people just don't know about. Thank you.